Hello and welcome to this episode of Ofsted Talks. Today we're going to be talking about exclusions and alternative provision. Yes, Anna, we are uh, a challenging topic. We know exclusions are, are really difficult for schools and no head takes excluding lightly, uh, but unfortunately sometimes they are unavoidable. So this podcast is going to explore how we can ensure that when exclusions are necessary, the children being excluded are supported in the best way possible and have access to the best alternative provision to help them get back on track. Yeah, that is massively important. So first up, I talked to Anne Hebe from an Ofsted policy team, and we had a really interesting discussion about what we look for around exclusions and alternative provision on inspection. And then I took part in a fascinating discussion with Danny Coyle from the Newman Catholic College and Anna Kane from the Boxing Academy, which is an alternative provision. And we discussed the effect exclusion can have on children and some ways to reduce it. Brilliant. OK, first, let's have a listen to Anne talk about exclusions and inspection. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Hello, Anne. It's lovely to have you along. Um, I wondered, so for listeners out there, this is Anne Heavey from Ofsted. Anne, can you just talk a little bit about who you are and what your role is, please? I am Anne Heavey. I'm a member of the Schools and Early Education Policy Team. So mm-hmm. I help the organisation think about how we're inspecting schools, the methods that we use and the what we're hoping to achieve as we're doing that through our handbooks, our guidance um, and our inspector training. Cool. OK, great. So that means that you are very well placed for my first question. Um, what does Ofsted look at when considering exclusion levels on inspection? So there are a few um, bits of information that we will have about the school, which I'll go through. And I'll also talk about what we actually lay out in our handbook about mm. what we look at. So to begin with, um, our inspectors will have access to information about suspensions and Mm. exclusions historically that have taken place in the school. And they will pull out quite interesting information. So they'll look at the number that have taken place and also the reasons that have been recorded for both Mm. um, suspensions and exclusions. And they won't be making any judgments at that point about whether or not that exclusion should have happened or kind of this is automatically terrible or, or brilliant, yeah. but it will help set the tone. And one thing that I would just like to draw attention to is we do see um, no specific reason or not specified often listed as um, mm. why an exclusion happened. And it is likely that inspectors will want to find out a little bit more about what's underneath those suspensions yeah. and exclusions, because if we're not sure why they happened, Um, How can we learn from them and reflect on Mm -hmm. maybe how we refine our processes and provision? Um, We will also, right at the start of the inspection, the inspector will ask the school to provide records of their exclusions Mm -hmm. and a few other things like use of internal exclusion arrangements. So we'll be looking in the round Mm -hmm. at how behaviour and attitudes are managed as part of that behaviour and attitudes judgment Um, One thing I would really like to flag is that we're very clear in the handbook that we don't think exclusions in and of themselves are a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Head teachers do have the power to exclude if it is Mm -hmm. in the best interests of their school community. However, what we will be guided by when we're considering the school's use of exclusions and suspensions is whether that was a last resort and what is the culture and the actions within the school that help everybody to achieve really well and access a safe environment. Um, We certainly won't look at a school and think there are no exclusions. That must be great automatically. Mm. 
or there are lots of exclusions that must be bad we want to know why what's going on have that rich discussion Mm -hmm. so my my next question is you know slightly philosophical you've touched on it already but is exclusion a necessary part of school life that's a really good question (laughs) I think it's it's important that we remember that it's a legitimate action to take in some Mm. circumstances so is it a necessary tool in the toolbox for a head teacher to run a safe and productive school yes However, is it something that we think head teachers relish? No, I, I think mm-hmm. we can recognise that it's a difficult process for everybody involved. There are, as we know, lots of consequences and implications, and it's, it's it, yeah, it's difficult. So mm. we know head teachers will be making difficult decisions to manage the balance between maintaining that school environment, maintaining a safe and productive situation for everyone and also the best interests of that child so it's a necessary tool but it's one that should be used very very carefully and with a lot of consideration. Thanks Anne that was really helpful. Um, I'm going to move on to alternative provision now so if you could just lay out for me what is alternative provision? We often just go to straight to AP, don't we? So what is alternative provision? Oh, thanks, Anna. Nice, easy question. To start. <laughs> um, I thought you'd appreciate that. I, I think I'll start by just highlighting that it's a really diverse sector. Mm. Um, and I'll um, wimp out of immediately answering your question and say <laughs> that um, AP really exists to support those children who, for whatever reason, ordinary mainstream education isn't working or isn't the right thing at that time. So the cohort of pupils that access AP is very diverse. And, you know, we've just been speaking about exclusions. And I think it's very important that we recognise that, yes, it is a primary destination for many children that are excluded. But AP settings also work with children who may be out of school for medical reasons, may have experienced bullying and have other reasons to not be engaged with mainstream education Um, so it's an incredibly diverse sector and um, to attempt the the, you know what is alternative provision question (laughs) it's it is that it's the alternative that is necessary in the moment to support a young person or a child to to make progress and to learn hopefully to to re-engage with mainstream education Mm -hmm. but certainly to secure a meaningful next step or destination so I hope that answers your question but it's a good one to start with and I think the um the difficulty in pinning it down is sometimes you know you you come at this question sometimes with more questions actually and so I think it's totally understandable I'm going to ask another broad question for you but one that it'll be helpful to get an, an understanding of What kind of standards do we see in alternative provision? So for listeners that have already read our annual report, um, they will be... (laughs) Thank um, you, the geeks of you out there that have. I'm delighted. Well, there's um, a really helpful table within um, the school section which compares the inspection outcomes of um, different types of school. Mm -hmm. So for those providers that are registered and that we inspect, we can see that a lot of them are good or outstanding Mm. um actually if we're being frank um it's a really strong part of the sector in terms of inspection outcomes so we can see there are a lot of providers out there that are delivering really high quality provision i'm now going to caveat some of that Mm. we're going to talk about registered provision i think in a moment Mm. and some of the concerns that we have about providers that aren't registered 
But as I said earlier on, the cohort that access AP are extremely diverse and have got a lot of complex circumstances in their life. So you could have a really strong provider that isn't the best place for a specific and individual child. So mm. our concern is as much about the quality of the provider and the quality of education, the state the the status and training of the staff and, mm. and, and their contextual safeguarding knowledge, as it is those that commission the place for the child, whether it's a school or a local authority, how well does that commissioner understand the specific needs of that child? Mm. And have they thought, this is, is this the best possible provision to secure the best possible progress and put in that necessary support for this child? Or, crudely, is this just what's available? Yeah, okay. So that's a concern. I have another concern, which I'd like mm. to share, which is the use of part-time provision. Yeah. And as you'll know, the um, education inspection framework is underpinned by our concept of a really coherent, high-quality curriculum. Mm. How can we be sure if a child is receiving a patchwork of provision with some time spent with one provider, some time spent with another, and maybe they're at school as well, that that adds up to a meaningful and coherent whole and that someone is holding the reins of that provision and sure that it adds up to something that is genuinely worthwhile in every moment for that young person. Mm. And let's be honest, this isn't an issue for the AP provider necessarily. This could be an issue for the commissioning school. We do see cases when we're on inspection where the child has been sent to the nearest convenient space, which could be great, but isn't the great thing for that pupil. So mm. that's a concern. So I was going to ask you what can be improved about alternative provision. And I guess you've already touched on some of the kind of commissioning arrangements there. Are there any broader messages or, or you know, or specific things for providers that are listening? Any, any comments on that, please? I think one of the things we're really interested in is how that next step is secured. Mm. So it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because when we're on inspection, we're looking at the provision that's available for the children that are there in that moment right now. And really, what is so crucial is that that AP empowers and secures a, a fantastic next step. And mm. that could be to a special school, back to mainstream, to a different AP, to a post-16 provider. You know, the destinations are as diverse as the cohorts. But it's a big ask on providers. And I think we should be really honest about just how big this task is mm. to understand every pupil's needs, put in place that bespoke package and then secure that next step for them. That's yeah. a lot to ask. Mm. But we are worried about destination breakdown mm -hmm. and what happens, particularly at post 16, where the, you know, the statutory role of AP just doesn't exist. And if you think it's a bit of a cliff edge, you know, you've had a lot of supports. We know a lot of providers really build around their child. Mm -hmm. And then if you've had that at the end of your key stage four and it's not there isn't a bridge into what comes next, you could fall over. And who is going to catch you and who is going to make sure you have, you know, the, the progress that has been made at that setting is carried on to that next mm -hmm. step. So that's something mm -hmm. we would really like to work on. And that's not just providers, that's everyone involved in that destination. Yeah. And then um, the other thing we really are concerned about is the use and our 
kind of sector knowledge of unregistered providers. Yeah, I was going to ask about this. So for people listening out there who don't really know what we mean by registered and unregistered, can you just give us a, a brief definition of that and then talk through some of the concerns you've got? So a registered provider is one that is known to the Department for Education and that we can inspect. So we know mm-hmm. quite a bit about registered providers. <laughs> yeah. Um, And we will continue to inspect and understand what's going on in those providers. And as I said, the the inspection outcomes for registered providers are pretty, pretty strong. Unregistered providers are just that. So they're not necessarily providing, well, they're not providing a full time operation. And frankly, we, we just can't be sure about the quality, suitability and safety of the provision on offer. Now, I don't want to sit here and just do down everyone that's involved in the sector. That's not my aim, because we know, as I said right at the start, this is a really diverse sector. There are lots of providers out there who are employers, who are you know, community service providers that are providing a really bespoke, really unique offer to that child. And again, I said earlier, we've got to make sure the provision is the thing that child needs. Mm. So we, we need to find a way that doesn't drive great providers out of the system who are providing that great service. But it is it is not OK. And we are worried about the fact that some of our most vulnerable children are being sent to settings that we cannot be confident are safe. And that is a very low bar. And it must be reasonable to expect us to make those checks about the suitability and safety of those providers. And we will hold to account in our provider inspections those that aren't properly checking out the providers that they're commissioning. So when we inspect a school, we will always ask, are you commissioning AP for any of your pupils? And we will look into that. Mm. And we will we will be very concerned if we find out that suitability checks haven't been taken out. But yeah, repeating that question, is it okay that some of our most vulnerable children are being sent to settings that we know almost nothing about. Thank you. That's a that's a really helpful question, I think, to pose and, and finish with. Um, thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate your time. That was really interesting, Anna. I think the points Anne made around registering AP at the end were really important. Uh, it's a low bar, isn't it, ensuring that all mm. children are in safe and supportive environments, but we're not even there yet. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is. So your next guest specialised in a supportive environment. That's right, isn't it? That's right. Yep, they do. So let's have a listen. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. I'm very pleased to be joined today on the podcast by Anna Kane, who's principal of the Boxing Academy, and Danny Coyle, who's head at Newman Catholic college both of them uh, have some fantastic uh, insights to to give us on on this whole issue of of exclusions uh, alternative provision and the issues around them uh, and I asked them to s- introduce themselves and say a few things about uh, their work uh, as a starting point so Anna tell us a bit about yourself and about the boxing academy hi Chris um, so the boxing academy is even in the field of alternative provision, quite alternative. We're, we're the only school in the country um, with boxing on the curriculum and, and inspected by Ofsted, I'll have you know. Um, and we, um, boxing is, it's the values and ethos of the school. So we're providing an alternative education, rigorous and ambitious and aspirational, but using the ethos and feel of a boxing gym to create something different. So that's the alternative part, but actually it's quite a traditional school as well. 
Brilliant. Well, welcome, Anna. Uh, Danny, over to you. Tell us a bit about your school. Okay, thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, I'm Danny Coyle, head teacher at Newman Catholic College here in in Halston, in northwest London. Uh, a boys' school, year seven up to year eleven, with a with a mixed sixth form. I think what characterises this school most is is its deep commitment to um, to an inclusive ethos, um, as hopefully will become apparent, you know, during the course of this podcast. We fundamentally believe that um, no child should ever be written off, and therefore everything follows from that. You know, the rigor of the curriculum. The, the belief in second and third and fourth chances, the, the high quality relationships. Brilliant. So we're going to talk a bit about um, exclusions and about alternative provision. But Danny, why don't we start with, uh, as you uh, said, inclusion? Uh, how, what, do, what does inclusion mean mean to you, Danny? And how do you how do you support that? Well, I mean, you could spend the entire podcast talking about this. But, you know, in, in, in recent years, I've started looking at it from a, a wider societal perspective, actually. You know, in my younger years as headship and being involved in the pastoral system in schools, it was very much looking at the four walls of the school. I now come from it from I want an inclusive society. And therefore, as a head teacher, you know, we do have a power, we do have authority to try to put our vision into practice. And so my belief and aspiration for a more inclusive society can be lived in this. So, for example, you know, we, we ensure that the curriculum meets everybody's needs. And we can yeah. talk about this, talk about this later. But for far too many years in this country, you know, schools have curtailed the curriculum. So it's exceptionally narrow, a huge focus on on the academic big three or four, which means those children who could flourish in art or drama or sport are not written off, but certainly don't get their talents, uh, uh, don't get the opportunity to have their talents maximised. Yeah, good stuff, Danny. And how about you, Anna? Obviously, your your school, you're dealing with uh, children who have often been excluded in a, you know, in a variety of senses of, of the word. Um, so how, how, what, does, what does inclusion mean to you? Well, in in our school, inclusion, um, we try not to use the word actually, because okay. we you know we're we're an alternative provision, and many of the young people who come to us, they've had inclusion done to them, and it's not a word that they're comfortable with. So, uh, you know, internal inclusion can quite often be quite a terrifying sentence to say to a young person. Slightly broader, um, I couldn't agree with Danny more. Actually, this could be a boring podcast at this rate, because we're in danger of agreeing on lots. But, you know, we are, I've always looked at this, is that society benefits if these young people are able to become successful adults. That is, to me, the point of education, not GCSEs or a certain type of academic learning. Mm. But it, schools are here so that we help young people become successful adults. What inclusion means um, in terms of daily practice is we're really not keen on excluding kids, not even for a couple of days. I think maybe every uh, year there's one or two fixed term exclusions and they will only happen because there is a, a, a space is needed to put something else in place. Um, I've only ever excluded one child permanently from the Boxing Academy and it was because I was simply left with no other avenue. I can't tell you that we do this, this, this and this because every year is different. Every child is different and we are constantly reviewing and trying to be as flexible as we can to meet their needs. But the bottom line is they all deserve to be successful and they all deserve to go on and be successful adults. Now, that's really that's really interesting that you've the, the, the extremely low numbers of, of fixed term and, and would you have one per exclusion uh, in your time there Anna how do you how do you manage that because you know presumably there is there is bad behavior there are serious Plenty. incidents 
Yeah. Yep. So, so, yep. so what's your, what's your response to, to that? So just to be clear, the Boxing Academy is, like I say, there is no typical AP anyway, and we're even more untypical. Yeah. We do specialise in taking referrals of young people that are absolutely not able to get a place anywhere else. And it's usually because they have some sort of record of aggressive and violent or threatening behaviour. What we do is we sort of destigmatize the whole thing around violence. For the first few years at the Boxing Academy, and I've been here a really long time now, we spent an awful lot of time arguing and trying to convince people that boxing doesn't make people violent. And so quite often we find that, you know, the young people who come to us have been through a lot of different negative experiences, but they've learned. They're usually quite smart. They've learned that if you behave in a certain way, if you threaten someone or if you flip a table or whatever it is that they're going to do, you get yourself removed from the situation that you're not very happy about. And there could be lots of reasons for that. But this is a tactic. When they come to the Boxing Academy, They'll say, you know, well, you know, might have a a, a frank and full discussion with a member of staff, which involves saying, well, if you do that, I'm going to punch you in your face. At which point the staff member will go, oh, hang on a minute. If you want to do that, we have to go and spar. So you're going to have to have a medical. We'll get the gloves and we'll do it properly. And at which point we usually find that the young people are really astonished that that threat doesn't just immediately result in an exclusion. It might sound a bit odd, but once you remove that sort of... um, power if you like it's a sort of a a weird sort of power that children held by throwing the weight around and we're like look everyone here is a boxer we love fighting but we do it properly so if that's really is that really what you wanted out of this they almost always don't really want to have a fight or some sort of um altercation a lot of it will be to do with the de-escalation we do a huge amount of work around trauma and attachment problems you know it's very easy to see where these children have got these, you know, have developed these behaviour problems from. And it actually takes a remarkably small amount of patience and listening to get them to a point where they don't feel like they need to do things that cause them to get excluded. Um, yeah, fascinating. And um, not every school has a boxing ring. Uh, no. And the, ability, the ability to, to, to do that. Um, I'm Danny, not suggesting that everybody should. <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, no. But, you know, Danny, your school is much more uh, conventional. But, uh, you know, what of what Anna... What, what, as Anna said, uh, that either resonates or, or doesn't with, with you in terms of how you deal with that, that type of behaviour? Well, you know, we haven't uh, permanently excluded a child here since 2017. And uh, there, there have been many occasions when that would have been the easiest thing to do. And we have a wide raft of interventions. Sometimes it doesn't work and you have to try something else. But that was a conscious decision to be in a situation where children don't get permanently excluded from this school. Because I've worked in schools before where, you know, it's a weekly, it's a weekly event. Yeah, we do fixed term exclusions. Um, I did one this week for, for, for racial abuse. Not great. Well, it'll be better. It'll be better next week when the young person comes back. The most common reason why young people get permanently excluded is for constant defiance, consistent defiance, breaking the school rules on a regular basis. So constant defiance means that it isn't working for the school. It isn't working for the young person. But let's try something different. That's all we're doing here. And like Anna as well, we've done tons of stuff on um, on adverse childhood childhood experiences here and the impact of trauma. And also how many, many children, you know, with, with autism, for example, just see the world differently than we do. So, again, it starts off with the vision. It really does start off with the vision. And keeping children in school is a good thing. No, I just wanted to agree with you. That thing you said about no permanent exclusions 
it's a choice. I'll be honest with you. There are times when everyone's got their head in their hands. We've had young people placed with us. Oh, and yeah. You can go eight, nine months down the road and everybody's mm-hmm. like, nothing is working. This kid is such hard work. They aren't responding. At which point we saw, you know, there's a lot of teamwork and collaboration and support. But we're like, do you remember that one? Do you remember that one? That one took 14 months. And then suddenly one day to the next different child. It's if you make the choice not to exclude and to be inclusive like this, then it forces you to find a way to make it work. And I know a few schools like Danny's, but actually not very many that just say it doesn't matter what happens. We are not going to do permanent exclusions. And at that point, there's a different scenario. Thanks, Anna. Uh, of course, it's it's really important not just to think about you know, the child who's potentially being excluded, but head teachers uh, across the country are weighing up um, really difficult uh, decisions about the impact that some of this poor behaviour is having on the rest of the school, on the rest of the class, uh, and you know sometimes head teachers are having to make really difficult decisions to exclude because that is not just in the best interests of the pupil under discussion, but actually is in the best interests of the school community and is in the best interests of uh, their classmates who are who are trying to go about their their education uh, and 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 get get as much as they can out of their schooling as well. So really difficult decisions. Ofsted talks. Ofsted talks. Ofsted talks. Danny, I'll come to you next. What do you think about this really difficult balance between trying to keep children in class as much as possible, um, but also um, you know, respecting the authority of the teacher and and making sure that uh, their classmates don't lose out on on all important education? I think we need to see things slightly different. I'm not saying we abrogate responsibility. I believe in authority. I believe in teacher teach the, the you know the, the, the powerful knowledge that we talk about at the school. We have authority of teachers because we know stuff and the children don't. Now I believe in strong classroom control and teachers on corridors and all that sort of stuff. You know, we just walked off the playground, 800 children and they line up, you know, they're not silent, they line up and they go to class. So you have to run a good school and authority of the, of the, of the adults is central. But at the same time, when children make in fact, it's not the end of the world. But can I just go back, Chris, because the curriculum we can't forget the importance of that. And, you know, I think schools, good schools, outstanding schools, whatever that means, are now getting more opportunities to think about a broad, wide-ranging curriculum where, you know, you get to do a bit of drama and sport and PE during the course. And bo- we do boxing. We don't do it as, you know, as a course. We do it as after, after-school activity. The whole thing about high-quality teaching, having really knowledgeable, committed, caring teachers in school is the start of everything. You know, the curriculum foundations in place, the visions in place, the high quality teaching in place. But in our school, and I've learned this more and more now over the years, is the importance of literacy. You know, if you consider that 50 percent, 50 percent of prisoners in UK jails are functionally illiterate. You know, so in other words, they've got a reading age below the age of 11. If we could rectify and improve that, that, that literacy level, arguably, we could improve the, the number of people getting kicked out of school and the number of men end up in jail. You know, we often say the limits of my language are the limits of my world, which is Wittgenstein, obviously. But the fundamentals of running a school, the fundamentals of running the Boston Academy are based upon real high quality teaching 
a, a fabulous curriculum and a huge focus on literacy. It, it's amazing how many young people come to us and we obviously we get some details on what the schools think their levels are and their abilities and actually they can't read properly. Yeah. And what they've done is develop yeah. a way to get out of being found out for that over the years. It's not always the case, but it's often part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. We can't over, we can't overstate the importance of 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 being taught to read and being taught to read as early as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And we actually we discussed that on our on the podcast we did about prison education. We discussed, as Danny says, the fact that so many prisoners are, are, are functionally illiterate, and mm-hmm. and you know what part did that play in actually them ending up um, where they are, and what mm-hmm. does what does success for the children in your school look like then, Anna? What are you What are you aiming at for them? So obviously, we we're offering a, a reduced, but um, tailored, you know, tailored curriculum of GCSEs enough to get them into college or into whatever they yeah. need to do. Um, and the reason it's a reduced number is simply because all of them have got enormous gaps in learning. So there's a huge amount to do. We strongly believe, and all of our success in terms of careers and outcomes has backed this up it's better to get five decent grades at the best that you can than to be sort of getting 10 very very low grades that won't get you anywhere so that's just the academic side the truth is that really what we're doing is we're offering them a chance to turn it all around turn their experience in education into a positive one i think that a large number of the young people who come to us genuinely do not understand the point of education i think they probably think that education is an elaborate punishment and so we spend a huge amount of our time bringing them to a point where they they understand the point of education they understand how to be successful in it and they have aspiration and ambition for the future yeah and for for those for those young people that come to you as a result of having been excluded from a mainstream school and you're able to you know, turn them around, you're able to get them into college, able to, you know, to, to make them see the value of education. Do you think, does that then prove that the kind of the exclusion was the right thing to do in the first place? Are you happier oh, there with you than, than in their mainstream school? That's a really interesting one because somebody, we had an argument about that the other day. Um <laughs> I think, I mean, a lot of the young people who come to us are not permanently excluded. They are on a dual registration referral. And I I really admire mainstream schools that make decisions like that, which because it is in the best interest in the child. I don't know. Some people may not realise, but the process of being excluded is a uniquely damaging and distressing period. It's a long period. I would really like to see that not being part of this this landscape, um, but unfortunately it is. We have a lot of young people who come to us um, on that dual placement, but for the ones who have been permanently excluded, I do understand that sometimes schools don't have a choice. In some cases, it has triggered intervention and support from agencies that would never have been able to pick up the problems for this child or the child's family sometimes. So there are occasions on which exclusion was the right thing to do. I do believe that mainstream is never going to be for everybody. And I would like to see the language around using alternative provision far less. It's talked about in some schools like a threat, a punishment. If you don't behave, you're going to get sent to somewhere that will sort you out. Or often the referral is the right thing for the young person, but it hasn't been presented to them or their family as a positive step. And I don't believe that needs to be the case because actually it usually proves that they've been moved to us and that they are in the right place. I now want us to have a listen to a pupil called Sam. She's at university, but she was previously excluded uh, from school in her GCSE year. And she finished uh, her time at school at an alternative 
provider before going to college. So let's have a listen to her experiences. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened to you? Um, well, uh, in secondary school, um, so I was pretty good for a few years and then all of a sudden sort of around, I say like year nine, year 10, my behaviour kind of like declined a bit due to like my own mental health and like issues I had at home. And I did um, reach out like many times throughout the whole time I was in secondary to my school and it was always kind of said that help would be put in place and it kind of never was. So then every time I got like excluded for something minor, um, it sort of all kind of built up. And then um, eventually there was like quite a big incident, a couple of big incidents, like sort of at the beginning of year 11. But um, that basically kind of rather than kind of helping me, they just sort of sent me to a pupil referral unit for the rest of my uh, school time. Um, but it's like I feel like a lot of that could have been prevented if if I had the intervention like earlier because it wasn't like they weren't aware of things that I had going on. So yeah, it was that sort of thing. What was the process of being excluded like? Did you have a meeting with your head teacher or were your parents involved? Yeah, uh, so like after whatever incident happened, I was on like exclusion while they decided what to do, and then the decision was made to put me in a pupil referral unit. Um, I didn't really get a lot of help to, because obviously um, I was taking a lot of GCSEs and most of that wasn't taught in pupil referral units. So I didn't really get any sort of much at all help from my school on how to revise and stuff like that. Um, and like, I was kind of just kind of left hung out to dry a bit, I felt. When you were excluded, how did that make you feel? Um, it was quite a rejecting sort of feeling because it was, uh, I'd been, I had been trying to get help for quite a while. So it was kind of like, yeah, it did. It did definitely. It was. It was definitely a feeling of, re- of rejection, kind of thing. Uh, and it felt like that you can't deal with me. If that makes sense, it's like it didn't want to deal with me. And it just, yeah, it didn't feel very nice. Is there anything in the process that you would have liked to have happened differently? Um, I guess just a little bit more support as well, and especially because I was just kind of thrown into like a pupil referral unit with, you know, obviously kids that were like a significantly worse than me. And um, I didn't like, I never had any sort of like violence or anything, you know what I mean? So to be lumped in with kind of kids who did have those sort of things was obviously, it kind of felt like just being put, pushed aside and like not able to be in mainstream. It definitely made me feel a bit lost. So I think some extra support would have been, would have been a lot better. So can you tell me a little bit about what your pre was like? Were they helpful? How did they support you? Pre was, um, yeah, it was okay. Obviously it was quite... Um, quite a daunting environment and obviously the quality of teaching there isn't isn't great at all which obviously isn't the fault of the proof because they have so many kids there of so many different levels kids that have been out of school for quite a while and the teachers tended to be quite supportive but it was just more so you know they like you could tell the teachers there were doing everything they can with extremely limited funding and like limited resources like it felt a little bit prisoning at times but like the teachers there obviously there's nothing they can do about it so I found that them to be quite supportive. Obviously, it was quite a bit daunting and kind of sort of scary at times. So you took your GCSEs. Well done. Did you go on to a further education college? Uh, yeah, once I got my results, um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And once I got my results, I actually managed to kind of get a bit lucky. I, got, I did quite well. Um, so I did end up going on to further education. But I'm sort of like most kids, pretty much every kid I went to Peru with didn't end up doing that so that kind of just shows that there's not really that much 
support in place for these kids. It's kind of like you're just cast aside and then you can't really get back into the mainstream. You're at university now? Yeah, yeah, now I'm at, yeah, I am, yeah. Uh, which is just, I just was quite, you know, but yeah, I do count myself quite lucky in comparison to a lot of my peers in that sense. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Danny, Sam was talking about uh, the fact that she felt her exclusion could have been prevented. Sounds like that's something that you're familiar with. Yeah, as I've said a few times now, you know, you've got to get in school. Teaching is one of those jobs where things can change very, very, very quickly. So you've got to get incidents from time to time. And, you know, I would I would I would never say that head teachers shouldn't have the right to permanently exclude because, you know, sometimes things can happen which are exceptionally serious. You know, we are part of society and we reflect that. But as I keep saying, by and large, young people are firmly excluded for constant infractions of school rules. Anna, she said that being excluded gave her a strong sense of rejection. Do you find that children who come to you uh, have that? Yeah. Yes. And um, well, I mean, I I mentioned briefly earlier about the actual process, reinforcing that way it is done. Um, Even young people who've been sent to us on a on a, a dual registration placement, so they haven't been excluded and the school is still responsible for them and still has contact with them, they often feel rejected. I'm, I'm not surprised she found rejected. I, I thought I thought the way she talked about the Prue was really sad because she was mm. saying, you know, the quality of teaching is not great, but that's not their fault. And I'm thinking, I don't agree with that. I'm sorry. It's just awful that even the child, I mean, I know there will be lots of people who mean well in certain places, but for the child to pick up that the quality of teaching is not very good and to make excuses for the play. I think that's heartbreaking. I think it's a really good indicator of what's wrong with how we do this in this country. It just, there should be alternatives and they shouldn't be second choices or second best. Yeah. AP generally isn't rigorous enough. I don't think, we don't even know what, how many APs there are in this country. There's no proper definition of it. Nobody can agree on how it's supposed to work. The funding is extremely patchy. Um, and some of it's full, you know, the, the variation in quality and it is it's actually quite extraordinary that we are in this situation. I don't know about you and probably Ofsted. Well, I know Ofsted feel the same way. It's an absolute dog's dinner. But what that means is that the really vulnerable children that nobody cares about never get found. And, you know, I just think that there needs to uh, I'd like to see alternative provision, not a second choice or the, the, the dumping ground. So the young people we have seriously a lot of them if they hadn't been able to turn stuff around at the boxing academy and i by the way i'm not pretending they come out perfect (laughs) but what we can do is affect that that ignition of that change you know that inspiration that understanding how to go about improve things and getting things right if they hadn't come to us they would have ended up causing society a massive amount of distress harm and actually money but i don't see any real drive to try and make it more um systematically more even-handed and fairer so yeah i think that just broadly that is something that we really need to get right yeah couldn't agree more and yeah we don't even we don't have something as basic as as registration for all alternative provision you know you'd be providing pretty serious amounts of education uh in an alternative setting and, and not even have to kind of register or be accountable to any to anyone or and these are some of the most vulnerable children we we have yeah. um yeah i think you know offset has called for a long time for yeah. for all alternative provision to be registered and that's such a low bar to get over isn't it <laughs> yeah we, we can't even do that 
Um, yeah, I do think it's really good to be shining a light on this. We need to keep keep talking about it. What happens is reviews get published and proposals get published, or some you know think tank does a report, and nothing changes. Uh, You're still dependent on the right people in the right school on the right day to intervene and try and save a child for whom education isn't working. And it simply should not be left to chance like that. So, yeah, I'm just, you know, glad that we're still talking about it. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. That was really interesting. Thanks for sharing that bit. They obviously do a range of things to meet their needs of the school community. It's great. Yeah, and I'm really pleased that we've been able to do this podcast and have this discussion. Uh, Conversations around exclusions are often uh, heated and polarised and it's important to get the views of uh, some people who have been through that process but also some people who are trying to manage it the best they can. Yeah and I think in any debate as ever it's always important to think about well what are the things that we can agree on. It's really important that alternative provision is the best it can be. Everybody wants that to be the case and it's been good to hear a range of different views and opinions in this piece. So thanks everyone uh, who took part in this podcast and uh, thanks to you, Anna, and thanks to everyone who listened. See you next time.